Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. In a previous uh, broadcast, we talked about the Jewish approach to uh, the afterlife. And I want to continue this morning with a conversation about the afterlife and how it is understood within Jewish tradition. For those who have access to the previous broadcast, they can check it out on the CHRI website or on iTunes as a podcast. Judaism is a religion that attaches profound meaning and purpose to life. The mitzvot, the commandments of God, are meant to enhance and enrich our earthly existence. Even the grandiose visions of the Messianic age are primarily related to a future time in this world. But does that mean that the termination of life in this world marks the end beyond which there is complete and utter nothingness? A series of questions emerges from all generations of the Jewish people. Is death merely the cessation of life? Or is it perhaps the beginning of a new type of existence? If it is a new type of existence, how does it compare with life as we know it? Could it perhaps be a far greater form of existence than the one which we are familiar? Do all people share the same fate? Or are there distinctions between different types of people? Do all Jews share a common belief in what happens after we die? And how might different perceptions of death affect our behavior here and now? It is impossible to answer all these questions in one broadcast. This morning, I would like to share with you some thoughts about the ancient biblical understanding and rabbinic, and then turn to um, a colleague who will share with you how these issues are understood in a modern setting. I want to begin, as we often do on this show, with reading a biblical text. And my text this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, beginning with verse 3. So let me quote it. And when God has given you rest from your sorrow and trouble, from the hard service that you were made to serve, you will recite this song of scorn over the king of Babylon. How is the taskmaster vanished? How is oppression ended? The Lord God has broken the staff of the wicked, the rod of tyrants, that smotes people in wrath with stroke unceasing, that belabored nations in fury and relentless pursuit. All the earth is calm, untroubled, loudly it cheers. Even pines rejoice at your fate and cedars of Lebanon now that you have lain down. None shall come up to fell us. Sheol below was astir to greet your coming, rousing you the shades of all earthly chieftains. Rising from their thrones, all the nations of kings of nations shall speak and say to you, So you have been stricken as we were, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the stains of your lutes, worms are to be your bed, maggots are your blanket. 
How are you fallen from death, O shining one, son of dawn? How are you felled to earth, O vanquisher of nations? Once you thought in your heart, I will climb to the sky higher than the stars of God. I will set my throne. They who behold you stare. They peer at you closely. Is this the man who shook the earth, who made realms tremble? If we were to understand this text literally, then we might infer that there is some sort of continued existence of humanity in Sha'ol. It is a place in which there is speech, in which all share the same eternal shadowy existence. It is called a pit, which again implies a place dug deep into the earth. Even the king of Babylon will be greeted with, So you have been stricken as we are, you have become like us. Shemayim, or heaven, seems to be the opposite of this place, and to get there one must ascend rather than descend. In addition, the book of Jeremiah seems to suggest that the grave seems to be a final resting place that comes along with a permanent house for those great kings of the nations. While the Babylonian king will be thrust from the grave, his body mutilated, not to benefit from the eternal peace allocated to other kings. But descent to Sheol, the be-all and end-all of the afterlife, asked the rabbis. Is there not something more meaningful and hopeful awaiting us after death? Who merits going to Shemayim? In the book of Ecclesiastes, there is another interpretation. In Ecclesiastes 12, 7, there is a new light shed upon death. Listen to what it says. And the dust returns to the ground as it was, and the life breath returns to God who bestowed it. This text shows a different, new light on the nature of death. Humankind is composed of goof, body and soul. The term ruach is used in this text as two elements are indicated as part and parcel of our existence. In Hebrew, it says, Vaharuach Tashuv El Elohim Asher Na, a body and a dust, a goof and a nefesh, which is called Ruach. So we've been introduced to the biblical understanding, but there, of course, is a rabbinic understanding. The rabbis of ancient memory adopt a distinction between the fate of the goof and the nefesh as expressed in Ecclesiastes. Immediately after death, according to the rabbis of the Talmud, the nefesh ascends heavenward to the place of its origins. The rabbis, however, believe that its immediate ascension is limited to the souls of the righteous. So not everybody's going there. 
existence there is referred to as olam haba, the world to come. It is not a situation that will develop sometime in the future of olam hazeh, this world, but rather a world which exists parallel, to which we have no access since we are confined by our physical presence. It is called the world to come because for those of us still living, it is to come. There are, however, countless souls of the righteous deceased already enjoying life there. It cannot be fathomed by mere human beings or mortals what is the nature of the soul's existence there. We who are limited by time and space cannot understand that which God has created. And in fact, the term God in Aden is used by the rabbis to describe um, the Garden of Eden, that which exists in the world to come. One last comment. In the teachings of the rabbis, it is said, this world is like a vestibule before the world to come. Prepare yourself in the vestibule that you may enter the banquet hall. This particular text sheds light on the meaning and significance of the afterlife. Olam hazeh, this world, is compared to a vestibule, and olam habaz compared to a banquet hall. Thus, olam habaz far greater than life in olam hazeh. But the significance of this metaphor goes deeper than this. In fact, we are taught olam hazeh is nothing more than a gateway to olam habaz, this world being only a means to achieve a future more important stage of existence. So what compelled the rabbis to adapt such an unflattering view of this world in comparison to the world to come? Based on the rabbis' theology, it is likely that the rabbis were troubled by the perceived injustice in the world. Poverty, sickness, persecution, and suffering— are inflicted on the righteous as well as the wicked. So how can this be explained, they asked. The reward waiting the righteous must be deferred, deferred to life in another world, to life in the olam haba. True justice will prevail only after death. Since the life of this world, according to the rabbis, is temporal, transient, and an inferior form of existence, we should prepare ourselves how to ensure that we are worthy of merit to share in the ultimate existence, which is the Olam Haba. This unstated method of preparation could only be an allusion to what in the mind of the rabbis was the supreme fulfillment of God's word, performance of mitzvot. This morning, I've taken you on a quick journey from Isaiah to Kohelet to Ecclesiastes, to the rabbis. And I've shared with you the development of some ideas that underpin the traditional Jewish understanding of what happens after we die. It's been a quick journey, but now I want to take a quicker journey to the modern era. With me this morning to further our conversation is Rabbi Reuven Bolka 
of Congregation Magziki Hadas in Ottawa. Rabbi Bolka not only is the rabbi emeritus of Magziki Hadas, but a well-known author both in Canada and the United States on subjects as uh, diverse as the uh, modern Jewish community and psychology and religion. Uh, He has a PhD in psychology, and he's driving um, from New York City to Ottawa at this moment, Um, and I am thrilled that you joined us on the show, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, pleasure to be with you all the time. So um, I want to continue the conversation that I've started with the audience this morning about what happens, uh, what is the Jewish belief about what happens after we die? And so how do you explain um, in times of crisis um, or in times of uh, extremists to members of your community the Jewish perspective on life after death? Wow, that's a big, that's a big question. So uh, I, I begin by saying that we don't know for sure precisely because there are so many different views as to what it is, whether it's, uh, you know, like the, is, is it the flowing gardens with the fruit? Is it the people sitting and, uh, and, and digesting uh, a beautiful uh, Torah study? There's, you mean, there's a wide range on the good part. There's also a wide range on the opposite. We don't like to talk about health. But there's a lot of talk about that, too. So, you know, it, it, it occupies a phenomenally wide range, which is a nice way of saying all of them are possibly true, but it's impossible for all of them to be true. So, uh, basically, the only way you could know is by going there and then coming back. But really, nobody's ever done that. So, what we're left with the bottom line, the bottom line really is, that uh, there's uh, more to life than we realize, and there's a world beyond this world, uh, Victor Frankl's famous uh, words. Um, we see, he uses that famous um, analogy of the ape serum. He's uh, in, in dealing with the suffering on, on this earth, he says, when, when you're putting the serum into an ape, uh, to see whether as a vaccine it works uh, for human beings. So the human beings who are administering it, they know exactly why they're doing it. They, they can understand why the ape is going through all of this travail. The ape, unfortunately, has no clue. Uh, but we know from what we're doing that there's a meaning to the ape suffering because it's going to be, hopefully, alleviating the suffering of other human beings. So there is a transcendent dimension to it. So Frankel then asks this rhetorical question, isn't it possible that the same thing applies to the human being in the human condition? Namely, that uh, we go through travail in this world not knowing what it's all about, but maybe it will be explicated in a world beyond this world. So, so, so I think it's best. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I was going to ask is, um, how does your answer differ from someone's answer who might be um, less committed 
to a uh, religious perspective. Um, you have, throughout your life, been committed to a life of uh, religious behavior, um, and you are known throughout the Ottawa community and throughout North America as an Orthodox Jew, which uh, suggests to many that you are a firm believer in God's existence and God's uh, interaction with human beings. And your answer seems to suggest that there are many different answers, which might be an answer that a liberal rabbi would give. Um, and uh, a humanist uh, might also say that we can only uh, see what's before us. So why would we believe that there's any reward or punishment? Um, how does your answer um, challenge um, those who don't see the world from a religious perspective? That's a very good question. But uh, here's an interesting... I, I make a dichotomy between two things. Number one, I firmly believe that there's a life beyond this world. Okay, One, so you're I clear am, about that. Right, right, right. So, but when you ask me the question, how do I handle it with others, I have to assume that they're not, they're not necessarily in the same airspace as I am. So uh, what I try to do is uh, share with them uh, some form of an intelligible response that they can relate to no matter what persuasion they're coming from. Of course, there are going to be some people who say it's total nonsense, there's nothing beyond. So I want to read to you, Rabbi, um, something and, and ask for your response. This is a piece written by Rabbi uh, Peter H. Schweitzer, who claims to be a non-believing humanistic uh, rabbi. And he says the following. Judaism in its origins makes clear reference to burial customs and mourning practices, including the purchase of graves and the tearing of one's garment. But the biblical test is conspicuously reticent about discussing what happens next. There are references to Sheol, a kind of underworld destination for all the dead, a kind of oblivion in the dust for both the righteous and the sinner. But the Bible's virtual silence on the matter suggests a finality to life. Apparently, this message was too harsh for most people. And the cruelty and injustice whereby good people suffered and the wicked prospered was too disheartening. So he seems to be suggesting that our rabbinic ancestors uh, simply came up with uh, a series of metaphors to make life easier. Is that a message that resonates with you? Uh, I, I've heard this uh, not only from him, but from others. Uh, put it this way. Uh, the fact that things are not mentioned in the Bible doesn't bother me that much because the Bible is not interested in the world to come. It's interested in th this world. And on the so, so that's a of for our listeners who may be primarily non-Jewish, that's an important distinction that you make, that Torah is interested in the life that we live in this world, and that the world to come, if there is such a uh, destination, is secondary to how... Uh, the God of Israel sees his interaction with um, 
the members of the covenant. The ancient rabbis had simply decided that the harshness of the Torah was too much for the modern world and created the uh, notion of an afterlife as kind of a uh, pablum for those of us who uh, saw the challenges of daily life. And you started to answer about whether the Torah, not mentioning it, bothered you. Well, so uh, it doesn't bother me at all because I know that, the, as, as we mentioned, the, the Torah is concerned about what we're doing here on this earth. And uh, you find so many interesting statements in rabbinic sources about, you know, one hour of good deeds here is better than all of the world to come. Another was that the world, the tranquility of the world to come is better than all of this world. So I don't know the, uh, I have no problem with uh, accepting that this is something that was part of them and part of tradition, and it had to be articulated a little bit more forcefully, precisely because it was not uh, indicated at all in the Torah itself. I mean, there are references to it later on, uh, but uh, the fact that it's not there, the Torah does not bother me. And uh, what uh, what were the rabbinical motives in talking about it? I am sure that they addressed the issue more forcefully because of the issues that were coming up on a regular basis amongst the population. But I would not jump from there to the conclusion that they invented it. Uh, I would just say that they accentualized it a little bit more forcefully because of the exigencies of the moment. So I want to publicly thank Rabbi Bolka for doing everything he can to uh, help us explore this issue. I want to continue now um, with what he and I began to chat about, and that is uh, this message that Rabbi Bolka indicated had been um, explicated on by the rabbis of ancient memory because they understood that the difficulties that the Jews were facing from the second century of the common era onward required them to uh, unveil that which they saw as the God's message hidden in the words of Torah. And uh, I want to ask the question, uh, is that approach one that is comforting to the modern Jewish world? Is it um, something that the modern Jewish world uh, really gives much thought to this elaborate construction of the Olam Haba versus the Olam Hoseh? And do they derive comfort from it? The least religious of the uh, denominations of Judaism, the humanistic Jew, says that uh, as they are dependent on empirical reality for truth, they are unable to speak about the world to come. Humanistic Judaism says, and I quote, we live our lives here and now we make no bets on an unknown future. Not only is the jury still out, we are not waiting for it to come back. Were we even to believe in a heaven, I'll bite a metaphoric one, our mission would be to bring it about on earth, not to wait for it in a life postponed. 
We may not believe in an afterlife, they write, but we can gain a kind of immorality, immortality through our deeds and our accomplishments. The institutions we build, the charities we endow, the families we nurture, and the lasting memories that endure in the minds of those who survive us. Finally, whether or not there is life after death does not just apply to the question of the deceased. It has also to do more relevantly with how one returns to life after suffering the death of a loved one, how one especially finds the courage to go on with life in face of insufferable tragedy. This perhaps is the noblest teaching that Judaism has to offer. It teaches us that there is a time to mourn and a time to renew one's commitment to living. It teaches us not to don the sackcloth of grief as a permanent garment, but over time to cast it off. For some Jews, I think it is fair to say that belief in an afterlife does not speak to them. They perceive that there is a dearth of biblical references, and those that do exist are quite oblique. And although the biblical text does make reference to Sheol on many occasions and make mentions to some sort of existence following life in this world and a number of places as well, the references are not clear and at times appear to be contradictory. More importantly, for some Jews, there is no empirical proof of an existence of an afterlife. But for many Jews, it is important to believe that as a community committed to a covenant with God, that that commitment and that covenant continues beyond this world. The rabbis of ancient times understood that, and they felt comfortable expanding on words that they saw hidden in the Torah to suggest that life did not end on this world. It is a complicated issue, and that is why many Jews see many different perspectives, as Rabbi Bolka suggested. It is not a simple issue, but life isn't a simple issue. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to thank Rabbi Reuven Boka for his time and his effort. You can listen to a rebroadcast of this show on the CHRI website, uh, on iTunes as a podcast. Shalom and have a good day. Behold.